0: Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy.
1: This edition to Insider's Guide to Energy is brought to you by FedEctus. Go to www.fodectus.com for more information.
2: Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy. I'm your host, Chris Sass, and with me as always is co-host Johan Oberg. Johan, how's it going?
1: All good, Chris. Another week, another show. Uh, looking forward to this one out of many reasons, uh, but it's been a good week. Uh, obviously, as everyone else, I've been following the COP26. We mentioned that on our one of our previous shows, but it's ended now when we broadcast, and I think it's uh, quite related to what we do.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been fun to watch. There's been a lot of press. Um, in fact, yeah, I came home from the office today. I needed a few minutes downtime before we did the recording night. And I, I laid down and picked up my phone and started surfing the news. And it was almost depressing. It was just one energy story after another. Uh, I was looking at BBC News. I went to some US news sites. And I was like, man, this is a bit depressing reading all this uh, this 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 kind of environmental news. It, it, it wasn't particularly rosy and pretty much headlines. So... Uh, you know, hopefully, we get together with our guests and things, and, and we find a direction that you know my kids aren't reading news as depressing as I'm reading. You know, when I come home from work <laughs> no, these days.
1: No, but it's funny as well. You know, for, from you know, I uh, from a marketing point of view and a communication point of view, it's it's quite funny to see that the kind of the shift from from communication from individuals and corporates in a in a, just a matter of months. Now suddenly everyone, the most important thing is sustainability, etc. I I hope. They're sincere. I really do. Uh, I hope they will keep it, but I'm just afraid that a new trend will come around the next month and then they will have another topic, but we'll see.
2: We'll see. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about economy, right? So with, with so much going on with COVID and the craziness in the world, there've been some setbacks, even when the meeting was got moved. And, and and so for me, the the risk is the economy, you know, there's risk in the economy all the way around us. And, you know, some, some people are going to worry more about the economy than maybe some of the suggested measures, I think. And that will probably slow things slower than people like. Um, but on the bright side for this week's show, we get to talk to someone that works at a think tank. He spends his time thinking about hydrogen and energy. And he was really nice. He's got a, a paper coming out on the 18th. And we're, we're kind of talking to him about the subjects that they're going to release in his paper coming out. And it comes just on the, the tail end of we just did a show a couple of weeks ago where we interviewed a hydrogen company. So we're, we're starting you and I to get our toe in the hydrogen, you know, dipping our toe in the hydrogen water, for lack of a better expression, and, and, and see what's going on. So I'm really looking forward to it. I, I've come up with some questions and uh, the pre-call with Luca today. I was talking to Luca and I said, you know, the, the one thing that I'm picking up around hydrogen is the economics don't always work. And having been in engineering my whole career... Is occasionally you get a problem that seems like it's it's a solution looking for a problem, and 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 I want to make sure hydrogen's not that. I'm going to challenge our guest on that because the economics are a bit challenging, especially without subsidies and without government support. And so, is this going to be you know the equivalent of blockchain was in energy where everyone says it's going to solve every problem? Is, is hydrogen one of those ones that's you know yeah it doesn't do this? Okay, so we can't really heat homes, so we can't do this, but it, it does this one really well. And then you know if we only had some regulation, it, the economics work. And, and so that's kind of some of the stuff that I'm interested in, because, you know, I, I, I love it from the science point of view. I just kind of wonder about the business end of it.
1: No, I agree. <clears throat> I think that there's you, you're spot on, on on a number of things. What, what intrigued me a little bit as well, I read its article in the Forbes magazine a few weeks ago in terms of the transition of industries. And we're we talking about the actual production of energy and and, and the, the digital technologies that are entering the market. But one of the things they highlighted in this one is that there is a lack of younger people coming into this industry as well. Uh, they were highlighting a few industries where there is actually a, a knowledge gap in the next ten years. And energy was one of them. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I hope I'm not here. <laughs> uh, our guest is also not just representing some of the new technologies uh, around, but also representing a new generation, which I think will be quite interesting to, to kind of drill down to a little bit as well to see, you know, why why do you get into this and, and what motivates people around this? But, you know, we've been we've been talking long enough about our expectations and what we think. Uh, I think it's uh, time to introduce the guests and I'll do my best with trying to pronounce the name uh, and uh, welcome to the show uh Mi at fleece hey it's great to be here now I actually think uh, I'm getting closer to Ferdy than not
0: so I'm not sure I'm not sure if I'm a great uh, voice for the new generation but but I'll do my best.
1: Yeah, but you um if we look at the average of the energy industry, then uh, yeah, by far I, I, I see as young. But <laughs> that's 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 only a number. Uh it's also I think what's uh, what's behind. So I, I'm really looking forward to this. But for our audience, uh before we move forward, uh who are you and who is Agora? Uh, right, so
0: I am a project manager for the hydrogen stream at Agora Energy Vende and we are a think tank headquartered in germany but with a global presence and our mission is to suggest policies that are evidence based that will allow us to reach net uh, that will allow us to reach climate neutrality by 2050 whilst retaining
1: growth in the economy so who are who are you um a think tank, I, th- I like it. We've had a, a similar similar parts of it as well. You know, trying it from lobbyists to to research papers, etc. Um, this is a big area. There's a lot of stakeholders involved. Who who are you the think tank for? Who are you working for? Who's your customers?
0: Uh well. <laughs> We don't really have customers per se. All our research is publicly available. Uh, we are just willing to engage with anybody, or well, actually, not willing to engage. We are willing to engage with anybody really, and our and our our research is directed at everybody, but um, or, well, or at least designed to be picked up by anybody. But it is directed at policymakers, and we are very much targeting the German, uh, the German policymakers as well as the European policymakers, but but not just limited to that. Agora has branches in uh, Beijing. Uh, recently, we will be opening a branch in a small branch. This is actually just a p- pilot project in Russia, But and we have an office in Bangkok. So we are, yes, our work is uh, global in reach, and we are very much targeting, I guess the customer
1: is the policymaker. <laughs> As a commercial person, there's always a customer behind it <laughs> somewhere, <Right. laughs> which is which is quite interesting. Uh, we talked a little bit about the introduction here uh, on energy sources and then specifically on hydrogen. Uh, we had a guest on a few weeks ago uh, talking about green hydrogen. Um, in, in your words, when, when we kind of drill down a little bit in the world of hydrogen, how would you kind of define it, uh, and what 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 does it kind of stand for in, in, in your view? Right. Uh, are we so we're talking specifically about green hydrogen
0: or hydrogen in general? You decide. Right. <laughs> well, so so I would say that in general, hydrogen is a crucial tool for reaching climate neutrality, but it is secondary to direct electrification. And the most important type of hydrogen by far is green hydrogen or renewable hydrogen uh, with, because this is the only hydrogen that is truly sustainable in the long run.
2: So, so yeah, I, I like the green hydrogen conversation. In fact, um, yeah, I think if you're going to produce it, it's there. I do know from some of the research that you're doing that you did talk about supporting those, some of the more gray, like I, I think there was some some reference from stuff I've seen you release or or about to release that talks about Russian uh, still using um, fossil fuels to generate hydrogen, things like that. But it didn't seem that in your long term strategy that you were totally opposed to it in the short run. It seemed like it was more of a a band-aid to get us to all green. Was that a misunderstanding of what you were trying to communicate? Because I could have swore there was kind of a blue hydrogen era in there from your perspective that was okay.
0: Yes. So we need, to, we need to draw, draw a line between the different types of hydrogen. To be clear, Agora does not support any expansion or continued use of gray, which is unabated hydrogen from fossil fuels. Now, what we've, uh, what you've alluded to is the idea of having blue hydrogen as a transitory tool to to a broader renewable hydrogen economy. And it's true, this this is quite a controversial topic. And we've seen seen research recently come out uh, from America by uh, Robert Howarth and Mark Jacobson, which showed that under certain circumstances, um, notably when there is lots of uncontrolled methane leakage and low carbon capture rates, blue hydrogen can actually be worse than natural gas. But In some ways this is a fringe case and what we at Argora are trying to put forward is strong standards both on methane leakage and on carbon capture and when you are compliant with or if a project is compliant with these uh, these strict requirements that we've proposed then Realistically realistically, over the next decade or so, the entire footprint, life cycle footprint of that plant is not much worse than hydrogen made from renewable electricity, backed by uh sorry, than hydrogen made by electricity, but with some backing from the from the grid.
2: So so let me step back a little bit, because I, I just kind of dove in based on where you were going and you know with the green and in and, and, and doing that. So so your, your premise that from in kind of preparing for the show is you're focused a lot on what we can do in the EU for for hydrogen. I think is where, where you're focused in, in the near term, and, and you're going to be releasing a paper and talking about here in the next weeks to come. Um, and, and so go back to my opening statement, you know, where I kind of said, "Is this a solution looking for a problem?" So. You know, when, when we had our guest on a few weeks ago, we, we had a company that had hydrogen trucks. And it was a pretty sexy story. And they had a hydrogen plant. It was green atoms, you know, electrons going all the way through to the truck. And it was doing all kinds of great things, right? Um, but it was a corner case because we happened to be in Switzerland at the time. And Switzerland has a, a tax on diesel and makes the economics work. And, and I recall my guest or our guest, sorry, saying on the show that, you know, should we want to roll this over just over the border, just, you know, just a few kilom- kilom- kilometers away, um, you would need subsidies or something to make this work and, and so I think from your perspective as well and, and you talked about who your customer is and making policy and things like that there, there's there's an angle to that so where do the economics start working because you know you, you talk about where you know having hydrogen should be and if you don't want to get the methane leak and you want to have all this and that you just produce it right in your backyard you don't have long pipelines and things like that and that works really well unless perhaps maybe you live in Germany or somewhere like that where it may be less well so maybe i'll let you talk from there and just kind of express where I'm trying to go here.
0: Well, Chris, you've touched upon uh, a number of different topics and I'll try to, I'll try to address, uh, I'll try to, I'll try to address them all as simply as possible, but I reckon the, um, so, so just to pick you up on this cost issue and it's true, renewable hydrogen is not comp- cost competitive today with the alternatives and the vast majority of the world. Now, in Switzerland, this is actually, Switzerland can be considered as, as the, what some of the best environment to make, and it, it is rather a unique environment to make the economics of green hydrogen work because it has great, it has nuclear power, but it has maybe even more importantly, hydro, which provides high capacity factors to electrolyzers and As you mentioned, for trucks, it has these special incentive or incentive taxes that tip the scale in favor of green hydrogen. Now these factors are not present in most of the world and, well, a lot of countries will struggle to find such a great hydro supply that Switzerland has. Uh, so yes, in the vast majority of the world, hi- renewable hydrogen requires subsidies. And and the reason we are talking about renewable hydrogen is because, as I mentioned, it is the only hydrogen that is sustainable in the long run. So just to make it just to make this point also clear, whilst Agora recognizes that blue hydrogen can be some sort of uh, can be near zero carbon, it is not zero carbon. So we don't see a large role for it by 2050. It is at best a transitory tool, but it can be helpful when you consider the amounts of renewables that renewable energy that would need to be produced in order to make sufficient green hydrogen for all the uses where green hydrogen is a good idea or even indispensable. And then that brings us to the, I suppose, to the to the applications that are suitable for hydrogen. So there's a number of applications where hydrogen is the only uh, where hydrogen is the only means of decarbonizing certain industry and this is par- not particularly important for industrial applications in industries such as steel such as fertilizer such as methanol and all the other different chemicals where hydrogen is used as feed- feedstock but there is also a number of other applications for example in transport particularly long haul transport uh, that requires then high-density fuels, so that is aviation or shipping. And in these sectors, we're going to need hydrogen, but perhaps not as hydrogen per se, but as a building block of hydrogen-based fuels.
2: So so I, I get that. And, and so... Maybe you could talk a little bit more about that specifically right what what the building block is so so what I, I think I've heard you say in, in a previous conversation with you in the past where there's there certain things that hydrogen is not good at right I, I think Agora and yourself would say, hey, let's not go heat your home with it because the, the efficiency of getting green hydrogen to heat your home is, is probably not ideal that the, the the loss ratio between all the steps it just doesn't make sense. But what I, I've, you know, I've heard you say, "Hey, industrial uses all day long, long haul transportation all day long." And then, you know, I, I guess maybe help me understand what the, the feedstock is and what it, what it really is and what the market value is of that, and what are we disrupting by doing that?
0: Right. Uh, well, I mean, we're, what we're really disrupting is the emissions. Uh, Currently in the chemical sector, what we're using is gray gray hydrogen, unabated hydrogen feedstocks. And for instance, in the steel sector, steel is responsible for 7% of global emissions. So switching uh, steel manufacturing processes from coking coal to green hydrogen allows us to abate that. Now, there is no business case for that today. And that is because green hydrogen is still too expensive. That is that is because electrolyzers are too expensive. And that's why we need policy support in, in these sectors to bring green hydrogen essentially to cost parity with fossil fuels. And I suppose the final message here is that Yes, we can, you know, from on one hand, so some might retort that, oh, well, why don't we let carbon pricing do it? Well, eventually carbon pricing will get us there. But we're talking sometimes about carbon pricing to the tune of 300, 400 uh, uh, euros per ton of CO2. But we need to make that switch over now because of the reinvestment cycles in industry.
1: So if, if I, I want to jump back a little bit to follow up on Chris' questions in terms of what drives what, the chicken and the egg kind of a thing, and if we look at if we look at the Swiss example, you know it's it's too small of a market to actually make something out of it, especially if you, if you look at it, the transport industry. But uh, if hydrogen is or green hydrogen in the long run, and I have the two questions around this, is kind of a, a way forward on heavy traffic or on airlines or, or boats or anything else but who drives this development because for me it is i might be wrong here but it feels like this is a decision made by the 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 oems the automotive industry they will say you know this is most beneficial for us based on the infrastructure that we can build based on the infrastructure that is provided and the price that we can get so if green hydrogen or hydrogen is not really available to the price with the infrastructure uh, then, sorry, it doesn't matter how good it is. We're going to continue doing it in another way, uh, even if from an from an hydrogen point of view, it could be the best solution. So, so how how does this work? So,
2: are you asking automotives from the steel production point of view, Johan?
1: No, I'm. I'm just thinking from from an industry point of view. If we're supporting an industry, let's say the okay. automotive industry, then how do we how do we ensure that hydrogen? Uh, it's not driven just because hydrogen is a good solution because the decision might be taken elsewhere for example at the oems
0: right well you know what's what what's good for the oems it's not necessarily what's good what's a good use of taxpayer money uh so so in that in that regard this this is essentially the the crooks of the agora no regret approach this is this is why we went out and we surveyed all the sectors where hydrogen is proposed and hydrogen is proposed in many sectors as it is an incredibly versatile molecule. But when you look at, uh, for example, Michael Liebreich, uh, Liebreich's um, hydrogen ladder, he has a really elegant way of presenting the uses, of the, all the uses of hydrogen, and he ranks them from the ones where uh, hydrogen is essential, irreplaceable, where and these are the feedstock applications where literally hydrogen is the building block and you cannot take it out of the equations to uses such as hydrogen in a home heating where there are competing alternatives and where hydrogen is 6 to 8 times less efficient than a direct uh, direct heating alternative through through a heat pump for instance so the question of where to so, so there is an opportunity cost to making hydrogen policy because you can support the rollout of, for example, hydrogen fueled cars, but then you are subsidizing a solution that is now competing with a solution that, with another decarbonized solution that you've subsidized, which is the battery electric vehicle. So we propose to channel the subsidies in the sectors where we know direct electrification is not going to win, but where green hydrogen still remains
1: some competitive versus fossil fuels. Okay, that's an interesting re- response because that makes a little bit more sense. Where, where we can, if I understand it correctly, then pinpoint the specific areas where, where there's no alternatives, and this will be the only feasible one to replace the fossil fuel. Because otherwise, you know, we have had this discussion. I think we had it on the show before. Uh, Elon Musk, we we talked a lot about Tesla, comes out with this, even the heavy trucks. Being electric, uh, battery driven versus hydrogen, wh- which he didn't believe in. So there's always this ping ponging back and forth. But I think this was, uh, it was quite of an interesting approach to it.
2: So, so I guess in, in with the trucks, you know, I, from from reading some stuff you shared with me before the show, I mean, I think I think your view is that electrified trucks for short range may still make sense, and longer haul stuff may be hydrogen. Is I think what I you would tell me if I asked that? Is that correct?
0: Yes, that's correct. And there is actually a very important point to be made here that whilst the majority of even heavy duty trucks uh, will be ma- what well, majority of trips and heavy duty trucks will be made by or are likely to be made with battery technology. And that is that is data coming from the IEA, which surveyed the OEMs and plugged it into their model. So whilst the majority of the trips might be made by battery electric truck, heavy truck, Ah, uh, you have to realize that eighty percent, yeah, eighty percent, and this is in the context of eighty percent of trips being shorter than four hundred kilometers. The the other side of those trips, so the really long haul trips, which which are over five hundred kilometers, will likely be made by hydrogen trucks, and this is this is a good niche for hydrogen trucks because these long trips require a lot of energy. So that means, practically, this means that we might not have as many hydrogen fuel trucks as their battery trucks, but they will be essentially using the same amount of energy because they're just driving for longer distances. So there will be... Yes? Are
2: you looking at the problem holistically? Because... I mean, you're already starting with the concept that it has to be a truck for long haul. Is, is that the most efficient way to go over 500 kilometers to deliver something? I mean, you know, if we have a blank slate, right, and we're trying to save the world or whatever you think you're going to do here with your energy policy, is the truck the solution?
0: Well, you know, there are alternatives. We can be we can be using as, as well boats where there are waterways, or we can be using uh, rail when it's possible. But a lot of freight in the U.S. carried by trucks and trucks. Uh, yeah. It's it's just carried by trucks. So we okay, I just curious. Through-
2: I'm just curious because you know you're kind of looking at this holistically and I look at it holistically going, Okay, well yeah, there's a lot of trucks in the US. Um as an American, it's it's just part of our culture, right? The Teamsters, the whole truck culture is, is an American thing, but it doesn't mean it's the most efficient way. In fact, there's shortages of drivers as we go forward. So finding people to drive those long haul trucks. Is also a problem, so it's not just fueling them. But you need, you know, the way they work today. And, until you have a full autonomous truck and someone trusts that, you have driver shortages, right? So I, I was just curious on that, but I don't want to belabor the point. I, I, I get that that what I'm hearing you say is there's room in the world. and The plan probably has for both. The Electrification is probably going to take place for anything 400 kilometers or less, more or less, and then for the long haul, where the efficiency and the energy gain. Is hydrogen has a good use case in the business case seems to make sense with a little bit of regulation in there to make that make sense is what I I think you you're telling me.
0: Yeah, that's uh, I, th- I think that's a fair summary. So so
2: let's change gears a little bit. Um, so we got this hydrogen, we got to distribute it, but you make it, and so if it's green hydrogen, you you may make it. You know when when the green is good. What do you do with the hydrogen until you need it? Like how do you store it?
0: Well, there is a number of options to store hydrogen and. Really, your storage option will depend very much on your use case of hydrogen. If you're if you're producing green hydrogen for the trucking sector, it might be okay to store it at a, uh, in a number of highly pressurized tanks, maybe even liquefy it, and then uh, for the reasons of distribution. But if you are imagining assist a power system in 2040, and and this is what we're imagining at Agora, we see hydrogen as an important way of balance of seasonally balancing European power sector. So if you're talking about taking excess energy in the sun and then using that uh, <laughs> excess energy in the summer and then using that energy and then wanting to shift that energy to the winter, really pressurized thing just won't do it. Just, you're, just, you're just not gonna, they're gonna become very expensive at the scale required. Fortunately, In Europe, we have good geology, so we are able to leverage or theoretically able to leverage the cheapest form of hydrogen storage, which would be geological storage in the form of salt caverns. Um, It is also possible to use depleted fields, but salt caverns actually offer the best economics and they are uniquely suited to seasonal storage.
2: So how does that work? Describe how you use a salt cavern.
0: Oh, well. So, um, so a salt cavern is, yeah, a geological formation. It's quite inert. You pump some push, you pump some cushion gas. Well, the cushion gas has to be the same as, you- as the gas you're using in order to retain its uh, purity. Yeah. So you pump some cushion gas, probably one third of the volume. And then you pump in the hydrogen that you want to use. So you, you you generate your hydrogen with electrolyzers. You you, you pump it you pump it into salt cavern, compress it, and then you store it in the geological formation until you need it. So how much do you lose on the storage? How much of the well the storage is quite efficient. If you have a good salt cavern, you shouldn't be able to lose much. The, I suppose you do lose that that third of the volume in the cushion gas, but ultimately. Um, if you imagine a salt cavern operating for 10, 20 years, cycling a uh, cy- couple of tens uh, of times per year, it, the volume of the cushion gas is really minuscule compared to the volume of hydrogen that you pump in. And we're talking, th- just to give you a sense of scale, we're talking about, uh, you know, gigawatt hours, like tens of gigawatt hours so- per salt cavern.
2: So who's Might doing have. this today? Is is you said theoretically. So when you say the word theoretically, that sounds like a not being done today thing.
0: Well, I, so actually, there is a salt caverns have been used for hydrogen storage. I believe they are used in the US. Uh, there is one salt cavern. I I'm not. I don't recall if there is one in Europe, but it wasn't. It wouldn't surprise me if there was. Yep. Um, however, salt caverns currently are used for natural gas storage. So that's where the purity comes from theoretical co- comes from the fact that it's been already used it's just not used on a large scale because we don't need that sort of seasonal hydrogen storage yet so two things that
2: come to mind then is you, you mentioned a, another problem statement that I think that the industry needs to overcome between now 2035 2050 somewhere along the way is so we, we still have gas uh, pipelines we still have gas other Gas using the infrastructure that perhaps you would propose to to use for hydrogen. How does that transition take place and and what are the economics of that transition? What what forces us to stop pumping gas through that and and pump hydrogen, let's say, through a pipeline or using the storage facility that I'm using for gas to now store hydrogen? What what changes that? What tips the scale?
0: A very difficult question. (laughs) Well, what tips the scale... I suppose economically and this goes back to the question of subsidies and actually this comes actually this is the crux of the hydrogen problem currently there is this is the chicken and egg problem that we don't have hydrogen users because we don't have hydrogen supply but the reason why these two don't work maybe is because we don't have a nest ergo the infrastructure to deliver the hydrogen from the optimal uh, places to the to the places where the main users will be located so it is a big debate currently in europe okay how do we how do we get this hydrogen infrastructure started and um, the gas transmission system operators are saying look we've got we've got a great deal of assets on our hands that we don't want to decommission or leave stranded just yet so they're proposing to repurpose these assets and. I'm hoping we get to repurpose um, the salt caverns at least. When it comes to the pipelines, um, well, the gas TSOs' their reasoning is that prox- that repurposing them costs one uh, carries one third of the cost of building new infrastructure. So there's the economics argument that, there for repurposing existing gas infrastructure. Then some independent analysts say, well, maybe. Maybe it's not one-third, maybe it's a little bit more expensive, 50%, 60 70%, but it's still cheaper than building a new infrastructure. So there is an economic argument for repurposing existing infrastructure. However, what worries me, and it worries me deeply, how are we going to, and this touches on your question, um, and, uh, and it doesn't even answer your question, Chris, but how are we going to stop using gas at the same time as we're going to start phasing in hydrogen? And in some places, such as Northwest Europe, where there are parallel uh, pipeline networks, where you have the high calorific gas and the low calorific gas networks, and the low calorific gas networks are being phased out, so you suddenly have capacity that you can convert to hydrogen, okay, that works. But actually, there is very few places, in or not very few, but there's rather few places across Europe where you have these parallel networks, where you can take take one or one line offline um, and yeah this question worries me and I don't think anybody has an answer to this
1: so out of curiosity uh, and, and when when the discussions are, are are obviously ongoing in terms of building this infrastructure and and utilizing existing uh, decommissioned or existing transformational infrastructure or building new new one, no matter what, there will be a cost involved, uh, one way or the other. And, and just out of curiosity, who in those discussions who takes this cost? Yeah, another great question. Another great question that is currently
0: being uh, hotly debated, uh, especially in the gas uh, in the gas circles. Um, I, sup- I suppose, from the gas uh, perspective, from the gas operator perspective, they would love it to. Um, they would love the state to, to just come in and shower them with subsidies somehow. Um, our view is, I suppose that the state should take a role, should establish an entity and finance the infrastructure. Um, yeah, the state should take a leading role in financing and actually planning and building this infrastructure because there is incentive for TSOs to, of course, overbuild the infrastructure as much. Yeah. Overbuild their infrastructure just because, um, um, that's how that's their business. Uh, whereas the state can more prudently take into account the no regrets uh, demand.
1: But that's which is obviously one one part of the discussion. But would that work across the globe? If you look at some European countries, it might be easier where the, where the state has a bigger stake in infrastructure in general and, and in major decision. If we move across, maybe to the US, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, uh, it's more of a privatized but well, Even Europe is that as well, uh, where where maybe it's not as popular of of, of taking that cost centrally. Um, maybe in the new package of, of comes out now, I don't know. But is that also something that you see, or is is still this discussion is still up in the air and then kind of.
0: No, that's a, that's an excellent question. I believe in Europe. Europe has the most advanced discussion on this topic. Um, but there are there are ideas in the US also to repurpose these pipelines. I I'm actually not fully sure what the um, I I haven't heard that much from the US side on this topic. But um, yeah.
2: So so we've talked about storage. We we've talked about the economics a little bit. Um, you know, and, and I think you talked about compression and, and, and liquefaction. Um, how does ammonia play into this? What, what, what's the value in ammonia and all this? Where, 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 where is that? I, I know you mentioned it, but help me understand. I'm kind of a newbie here.
0: Right. Well, ammonia ammonia is an interesting case because at one at one um, on one hand, it's a no regret hydrogen use. It is you know fertilizer is going to be used in the future. Uh, it's an essential part of the uh, of the commodity sector um, and of feeding the world so it and it produces two percent of current global uh, carbon dioxide emissions so it, it is essential to decarbonize it and there is really no other way to decarbonize it currently than with clean hydrogen so as a commodity in its own right, it is a no-regret destination for hydrogen. But but what's interesting, ammonia is that it, it is quite a good hydrogen carrier. It is and be, because it is used as fertilizer, because the technology is perfected, we have all the we have the know-how and we have the the expertise and actually many exporting and and this this is actually more important importing facilities across the world, which has led the producers of ammonia to propose that we use ammonia as a hydrogen carrier because you can embed hydrogen in ammonia and then at the destination using a little bit of heat or rather actually, should I say, a substantial amount of heat. (laughs) You can liberate the hydrogen from the ammonia molecule and boom, there you have it, your, your hydrogen. And the advantage of using ammonia is that it can be stored at minus thirty-three degrees Celsius, compared to liquid hydrogen, which become compared to hydrogen, which which becomes liquid at minus two hundred and fifty degrees Celsius. So ammonia is quite a a bit easier to store, significantly easier to store, and because of that, it's significantly easier to transport. Um, not to mention, we are we already have the global supply chain for that. So this has led some to propose ammonia as a hydrogen carrier the challenge of that is that the entire process of taking hydrogen or oh, sorry taking renewable energy then converting it to hydrogen and then going through the haber bosch process and then shipping that ammonia somewhere for it to be cracked back to hydrogen it's a lot of steps and each one of these steps carries a lot uh, a significant energy penalty which is which is why we don't see ammonia as a long-term, or at least uh, ammonia sh- hydrogen shipping through ammonia as an efficient route of hydrogen supply, which is, we only see it as an interim solution when pipelines are st- still not available. But in the longer run, it is pipeline transport that is uh, cheaper, that works out cheaper.
2: So assuming you can get the pipeline, right? Assuming that yeah. it's for-
0: assuming you can get the pipeline but there is an important imperative to get the pipeline because if you are a say if you're a steel mill and you know you're you're competing on a global level let's assume in 2040 that uh, you are co- that the carbon border adjustment mechanism is in place and you're competing with others you want to get your hydrogen as cheap as possible or not even steel maybe steel is a bad example because the cost of hydrogen doesn't Affected, it affects it significantly, but the cost of final product is uh, is not affected that significantly. But for other chemicals, this is very important. The cost of hydrogen is very important, notably, (laughs) actually ammonia. But, uh, but, but yeah, you want to get, you want to be able um, for a successful industrial policy in your country. You want to be and to protect against carbon leakage. You want to be able to have the cheapest feedstocks available. And this means accessing the cheapest possible hydrogen. And this is best done through pipelines. So there is an imperative for the state or for nations that care about their industries to to do exactly that, to make those pipelines happen.
2: So to go back to Johan's question in the beginning, so looking kind of at you, your professional career, you're clearly passionate about hydrogen. Your last few jobs have been about hydrogen. You're... you're you're, you're making bets on, on your, you're talking about 2040, 2050, uh, of where hydrogen's going. So, so talk a little bit about, about your experience in, in the business. So, you know, you, you've gone out, you're, you're, you're clearly, um, you joined a think tank, but I, I think you were doing education on hydrogen in the past and things like that. Maybe tell us a little bit about your journey. I mean, I, I get that you're, you're, you're not 18 and just diving into the industry. But I, but I also get that, that your, your journey might be a little bit of interest to, to the audience as well as how you got here and how you got to be an expert in hydrogen.
0: Right. Where do I start? How far back do I go? Um, well, uh, my background is as, as a chemist. I studied medicinal chemistry at University College London. And then I decided I, I didn't I wasn't really too keen on pharmacology. And that's where I picked up environmental um, You know, I I sort of became interested in atmospheric chemistry. I thought the environmental topic is quite interesting. That led me to do a, that led me to realize that, well, we are facing a climate problem and we are facing, and, and part of the problem, but sorry, the solution to that, of course, is deploying new technologies, fossil free technologies. But the problem is that these technologies are not seeing enough finance. So that led me to pick a masters in climate change and finance at uh, Imperial College London and through that I got a I was lucky enough to get a summer analyst placement at Investec which is an investment bank I had a free month uh, I did a free month research project and this uh, this is where it all started really I did a three-month research project comparing, looking at the battle lines between hydrogen and competing technologies across the different sectors. So transportation, uh, heating and power. And that let me, that, that's my, that was sort of my first encounter with hydrogen and that's when I realized that hydrogen is being hyped up as the solution to decarbonizing transport, but battery, it's already being taken over by batteries. And this was in 2017. Uh, when I was looking at it, and, and, the, and the chasm just got wider since then. But it did look to it did look to me as it as it might be important in in heating because of the difference in the heating profile uh, in sorry in, um, in in sort of energy consumption in winter versus summer, and the and the electricity profile pretty much stays relatively flat throughout the year, but the heating profile ramps up the power demand from heating ramps up five times in the winter. So at that time, I thought that hydrogen would be a useful use in the heating sector. I definitely thought it was good use in the power sector to back up renewables and do seasonal shifting. Um, and then I spent two years working, after this, I spent two years working with Michael Liebreich. And uh, and yeah, I spent two years working for Michael Liebreich, where we delve deeper into this uh, Story of hydrogen. Eventually, I just started. I realized that there is not enough public info. That that there are closed door discussions at at uh, closed door discussions for stakeholders. Um, yeah, for people for stakeholders in, in the hydrogen economy. Uh, but they weren't sharing the they weren't sharing the full picture of the world. And uh, yeah, I did a lot of uh, I started doing my own analytical work, releasing it. Uh, publicly on twitter and uh this led me to 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 start a, and through twitter actually i got connected with a platform terra.do uh where i started uh, where we started together a course on the new hydrogen economy um yeah i guess from then on i got uh yeah, my, sort of. My profile grew, and I was I was able to, to I was I was able to connect with this think tank in Berlin where I was already residing, and and you know the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, however, one, one last note: I talked about hydrogen. How I thought hydrogen was a good use in heating. Um, that was one of the mistakes I made early in my career. I don't. I no longer think, think it is <laughs> a good use for the heating sector.
2: I would say that was inconsistent with, with your, your company's current position. If you let if you that <laughs> go, I would have called you on that. So, so you, you ended up with this think tank. Um, so for our audience in the energy industry, what does an analyst or a person at a think tank do that thinks about hydrogen? What, what is your job involved? Like what, what, what does this think tank do around hydrogen other than release papers saying, hey, to get there by 2050, these are things that might need to happen? What else are you guys doing?
0: well we're trying well we're, we're trying to or we're coming up with policies to make it happen so we we care about hydrogen we 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 recognize and we, we say this publicly that hydrogen is part of the net zero story and since our mission is to get to net zero and to provide the evidence to policymakers, makers uh to, to to provide evidence on the and the policies or rather to suggest policies backed by evidence to policymakers, we 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 review um, we review the available evidence out there, and this is this means looking at commercial uh, commercial reports. This means looking at at you know the the news and surveying the news. Looking at, for example, if Shell says they're deploying an electrolyzer, we try to figure out how much that electrolyzer costs, um, and based on that, we we agglomerate this data. We Try to look for future trends, and we try to make the policymakers aware of these future trends, while suggesting policies that will be, that will sort of ride the wave rather go rather than going against it. So I know coming. (laughs) Sorry, go on. (laughs) Yeah. So 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 essentially, it's just it's it's um I would say half analysis and and half creative writing.
1: So I know we're coming up a little bit of uh, towards end of time. Uh, it's been really interesting. I, I have I have a final question, which probably could be a show on its own. So, so I'll, I'll see if you can sh- answer it fairly short. But but coming back from your background and what you just described, we know the technology of hydrogen is, is part of of, of the carbon free future. But but in order to get this done, and we've covered a lot of these different different areas in the sh- in today's show. There are so many stakeholders involved, and and as a as a in your current role, you, obviously you need to kind of touch base with all of them to make sure that this this ecosystem of stakeholders works. What have been your biggest or largest kind of I wouldn't say challenge, but maybe um, surprise in this eco- in this kind of ecosystem of uh, I didn't think about this. Maybe the technology was right. Maybe the politicians or oh, the decision makers, the infrastructure. Was there scenarios where, oh, this is something I never thought about or this really came as a surprise, good or bad?
0: Yeah, I suppose something that, uh, you know, waste to hydrogen really and, and closing um, more uh, s- sort of closing the circle on our agriculture emissions. We are so focused, or, or at least the world um or maybe not even the word. Just the hydrogen bubble is so focused on green hydrogen and to a certain extent blue hydrogen. We forget that there is, that there is, um, that there are so many other ways of getting hydrogen, and those are, for example, wastewater treatment or, or uh, agric- or yeah, closing closing the circle on uh, on agriculture emissions or on agriculture feedstocks, on biofeedstocks. Um, this came to me as a big surprise that th- there are business models that are not uh, talked about but actually are more materially efficient and I would uh, and to to a greater degree involve um, would even devo- involve development like human development and creating more jobs and opportunities than a simple than a simple line manuf- manufacturing electrolyzers and I suppose um, yeah, no, that's uh, I landed there.
2: So so I think um, as, as we wind up the show here, uh, one thing I'd love to hear you talk about is uh, you mentioned to me in the pre-show that you've been writing a paper that is coming out, I think, on the 18th of this month. Maybe you could give a little commercial for your paper because I'm sure our audience might want to know what it is and w- what you're releasing.
0: Right, so the paper is called 12 Insights on Hydrogen and it is a policymaker's guide to navigating the hydrogen wave towards sustainable application and supply.
2: So who should be downloading that and who who do you want to read that?
0: Everybody who's interested in hydrogen should read it.
2: And is it available to everybody? Will it be Yes,
0: on? yes, it will be it's it's it'll be released public and if if you don't have the time to read it all, well I'll be doing a Twitter summary as well.
2: So just from my academic days, is it peer reviewed your paper or is it just released from you guys? How, how do you make sure that it's in line with what, that it's just not your, your passion that's driving you, that there's some peer review?
0: I suppose, I, I suppose it is my passion, um, or rather our passion that's driving it. Um, what I, what we, we don't have an official peer review process now, but, uh, but, I, I was
2: just curious because you're, you're putting out an authoritative paper and I just kind of like, okay, you want people to download it and take action. And yeah, so I'm yeah. Curious.
0: yeah, well, you know, the paper has been re- reviewed internally by us, but if you don't trust us, of course, everything is sourced, everything <laughs> is transparent. And uh, if you join, you know, you, you can always uh, ask me a question on Twitter about it and uh, feel free to discuss it with me or challenge, challenge our assumptions.
2: Awesome. Like I said, I wasn't trying to stop you. I'm just, just curious because I always like to know where my information is coming from. And usually Johan's the hawk on the show that will say, you know, we're, we're follow the money. Where's the money coming for, for these things is, is kind of his, his way of thinking. Um, I, I've really enjoyed the show. I, I think, you know, I am at risk of saying that every show, but the the journey through this conversation, I think we covered a whole lot of ground, uh, in a very short period of time, very efficiently. You, you give us concise answers and, and, you know, I, I think. The more I do this, the more complex the problem gets, you know, the, the, the more time you spend looking at, let's say, hydrogen and specifics, and the more guests we talk to that do hydrogen, the, the nuance and, and the devil in the detail to make these things happen uh, really becomes apparent in, in why we need the dialogue so people can understand the hurdles. Um, I want to thank you so much for being a guest. Uh, it, it's been a pleasure to, to meet you on the show and, and share your, your thoughts with our audience uh, any final thoughts you want to share with the audience before we sign off?
0: Yeah, no, I just wanted to say thanks for having me on the show. And yeah, read the 12 Insights. It's, uh, I've been working on this since February. It's uh, I'm really proud of it. And uh, I hope you really enjoy it. And that's it. Thanks a lot.
2: Well, thank you again. And for our audience out there, you spent another hour listening to Insider's Guide to Energy. We hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we have. If you do enjoy the show, please share the show. If you're you're on Twitter and you're talking to our guests, please mention us, get us out there. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on LinkedIn. The LinkedIn uh, numbers are going up and up each week. And the more you follow, the better the guests we get and we keep the show going. So we look forward to talking to you again next week.